Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. What's up, bingers? Today, I am joined by a man that jumped into the true crime podcasting space with both feet in 2018. He is a man on a mission. Determined to identify the victims of the mysterious serial killer, Israel Keys. He's the host of the True Crime Bullshit Podcast, Josh Hallmark. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. So how are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for uh, having me do this. It's nice to meet you. I think we've like been in the same rooms multiple times. I don't think we've ever formally met. Yeah, bro. Probably, you know, the, the, doing this podcast has been the best way for me to like get to know other true crime podcasters because I never, I've, I've, like you said, we've been around like tr- crime con and stuff, but I never have time to listen. But now, like listening to true crime podcasts is part of my job now to do this. Uh, <laughs> and yours, <laughs> yours is one that was uh, recommended to me over. We have a, like a, a submission forum on our website for suggested guests, and I think Josh from True Crime Bullshit is is in the top three of people that have. Uh, that my audience has asked asked to get on, so uh, gave me a good reason to listen to your podcast. Which now I'm in th- now it's really fucking me up because I've got three other podcasts I need to listen to to prepare for. But I'm like I'm I'm in I'm hooked I'm <laughs> binging through it. <laughs> you d- you've done an amazing job. Thank you. That's great to hear. And sorry, I'm looking at myself now and I realize I look like one of those like um, anonymous people on a Dateline episode. I record in a closet. <laughs> this is as bright as it gets. <laughs> It is very dark, dark and creepy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just setting the tone. Um, but right. thank you. No, I, it's really cool to hear that. Um, I, I never really have a grasp on like where I am in the grand scheme of things within this industry. So it's cool to hear that people are talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 tough to know. So before we start getting into the podcast more and into the case, can you tell me a little bit about your yourself? Like, where did how did you? Because I know you had a podcast prior to doing true crime bullshit. Like, what is your background? How did you get into the podcasting space in general? Yeah, it's an interesting story. I, um, I've i been a writer my whole life, which, you know, in my 20s, it was like, I'm going to be a professional writer. And then by my 30s, I was like writing Medicare manuals. <laughs> so um, I sold out. <laughs> right. And, you know, I... But I was always passionate about it, and I had always wanted to write a book, um, whether it was an memoir or a book of essays. That was kind of the vision for me. And then my partner and I, after arguing about where we were going to live for five years, um, decided since we couldn't agree, we were just going to buy a van and travel the country for six months until we either ran out of money or fell in love with a place. And mm-hmm. 
So we did that and I started blogging about that and I was like, oh, this is great fodder for a book. I'm going to write a book about this. And after six months, we ended up in New York City. Uh, and throughout our six months on the road, we were listening to podcasts at nauseum. Uh, that's when Serial came out. So I was like, I became just such a Virgo nerd about it. And I had like Excel spreadsheets and I was like, listening to episodes over and over again and analyzing data and like i was gonna solve it <laughs> this you know 30 something right back then I, I had to i had to start a podcast because of my obsession with serial because none of my friends would talk to me about it but i had the same yeah thing, no, notebooks and all that <laughs> i felt like a lunatic <laughs> and so <laughs> we ended up in new york and i couldn't find a job right away because i had worked in a pretty niche industry and so I was like, I'm just going to write this book. Uh, and then I realized, like, I love podcasting. The medium uh, is easier. It's cheaper. Um, and at the time, I thought it was going to be easier to monetize, which is, you know, a, what we all learn eventually is a falsehood. That's what everybody thinks. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was like, I'm just going to try this podcasting thing. So rather than turning it into a book, I did this podcast on small town America because we also were on the road during the 2016 primaries, which was an interesting time to be traveling the country, especially two gay men in small town America. Right. Um, so it was really cool because we would stay at these RV parks in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska or Mississippi. And the only place we could watch TV is in their community center. So we would be watching the debates with all these other RVers from all over the country, um, having these really open, honest conversations about it. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. So I launched our Americana just kind of as a secret. I was like, I think I'm going to do an episode, see how it feels, see if I'm any good at it, uh, see if anyone cares about it. And so it turned out like people liked it. And I was like, all right, I think this is what I want to do. Um, that show was a beast to produce. I had no money because I had spent it all on this trip. Right. And <laughs> It wasn't monetizing the way that I had hoped it would. I think I was making like $40 an episode. Uh, and <laughs> I had always been really passionate about true crime. And I saw that true crime, which I mean, this sounds bad, but that's where if you wanted to become a podcaster and actually make it a viable career, true crime was the best place to go. And I cared about it. And I'd already been kind of researching Israel Keys for a while at this point. And I just didn't think that I was skilled enough to do it. But then I started listening to all these other podcasts where people were like, before this, I was a nurse. Or before this, I was working at a Shell right. gas station. And I was like, all right, so right. I can get into this. And yeah, and that's, that's how it started. That's an incredible story. And I loved, you know, in the, so right now I am, I'm on episode, I just finished this morning, episode 10 of the, of the podcast of the first season. But that, like that first chunk, and I, and 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 from everything I'm hearing, just I, like I can't wait to finish. It keeps getting better and better and better. But what I really loved about those those first ten episodes is we're also hearing you like grow into your role as the investigator podcaster. Like I love how you like you vocalized the things that were that were like on your mind that a lot of us just don't talk about, like. Um, like you mentioned, like, is this exploitive? Should sh you, I ask myself all the time on truth and justice, should I be talking about this? But then I make a decision and just do it. And then everybody thinks that I, you know, had a plan, but I love how you like, like talked through all those emotions and those dilemmas that you had, uh, going through it. Like, 
how did that, once you started producing it, how did it compare to your plans for it? Because you did a, a ton of research and investigative work before you started the podcast. So you had to have like an idea of, you know, what this was going to be like. And, and it seemed like you kind of started to realize the gravity of the situation once you started producing them. So like, what, what was that process like? It was interesting. It was really, really strange because I, I started deep diving my research probably two years before the show even launched. And in that time, I kind of developed like a weird Stockholm syndrome where I felt like I knew these people and right. his daughter, who I doesn't, I mean, still to this day, like knows my name, but that's the extent of it, like meant so much to me. Um, and reading these personal stories of how his crimes affected everyone in his life, I just, it's all I could think about. Um, so I'm researching it and I'm thinking about this poor family and what it's done to them. And I'm thinking about his victims' families and how most of them don't even know what happened to their loved ones, let alone, let alone that this is what happened to them. And I just needed, the more time I spent with the case, the more I needed answers. And so I became obsessed. And at that point, it's just me and the case files. It's just me and the videos. And then I start writing. And then I sat down that first day to record the episode. And at this point, I've promoted the show. And like the show is a thing that is going to happen. And I was like, oh, crap. Like now it's not just me and the files. And so I kind of pressed pause for a second and you know, I'd always kind of thought if I'm going to do true crime, I want to do something different because even at that point in 20, I think 18 is when it launched, the genre was still pretty oversaturated or it was just becoming oversaturated. And it was like, all right, I need to do, bring something unique to this. So that maybe that's it. Maybe like the story is about keys, but the subplot is about like the ethics and morals of doing a true crime show. And so I just figure I'll be really honest with the listeners about my experience and we can have some challenging conversations while also investigating Israel Keys. And it turns out people didn't want to have challenging conversations. Um, <laughs> I was accused of being navel-gazy and pretentious and I was like, okay, I think we need to reel back on this for now because I've spent thousands of dollars researching this case and I've invested so much time into researching it. like. We need to tell the key story and no one else is telling it right now. And we can get back to me and my feelings at some other point. Um, right. And I think, you know, now that I've developed some confidence and I'm in season four, it comes up just not quite as um, a, a intrusively. Uh, you know, I talk about it, I, I think, in simpler language and kind of uh, in terms of how the research is going and my fears as opposed to like, let's have a black and white conversation about ethics, which turned people off. That's interesting that it turned people. I, I get, well, I guess for I'm in a little different space because like you were for me as a podcaster, you were speaking to me because those are the dilemmas that I deal with all the time. And if for nothing else, it was like, Oh, thank God. I'm not the only, everybody sounds so confident that, that it was like, it's nice to know that other people struggle with these same things. Oh yeah. And it, it doesn't go away. It's three years later and I still have those same dilemmas right. every episode. <laughs> yeah, I have it. I have it every week. Every week yeah. I have, you know, you know, do I say this person's name? Do I hold it back? And this part's public record so I can say it, but should I say it? Or, you know, it, it, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough all the time, but it, it is interesting to know that the, the general consumer of true crime didn't like that. Didn't like, like 
didn't want to have that conversation with themselves. Because you, you asked in those first few episodes, you asked a lot of really good questions for people to ponder on, then had guests on answer them. You know, like one, you, you asked, um, should we have empathy for serial killers? And I found myself, I, I don't know how the audience received that. I found myself pondering that question for days now since you asked it. It felt like such a simple question. And I was kind of floored that me even asking that, like, created the shitstorm that it did. Because I was just like, well, if, if psychopathy or sociopathy are mental illnesses that one cannot control, that there is no cure for, then shouldn't we have empathy for them? And that empathy does not mean <laughs> that we forgive them or it's okay or we care about them. Um, it just means if he can't control these urges, then shouldn't we have a level of empathy for that? But people did not like that conversation a ton either. <laughs> um, or just that I was referring to him by the name that he was known by, um, which was is. his. Yeah, they, they said it was too close and I was accused of um, a whole litany of things about like having a crush on him and weird stuff like that. And, um, you know, I think. Have you reached the point in your career yet where you've learned to not read the comments? Yes. Yeah. I, I learned that pretty quickly. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I've learned to carve out space. I do not read the comments. Um, I do not respond to DMs. I do not read DMs. Uh, yeah. I'm just like, okay, I need to carve out space for myself because if I read these and defend myself, it's going to be a full time job and I'll go insane. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Oh, yeah, it's it's tough because it, it doesn't matter. You could read 50 great comments and great reviews and then one shitty one. And then that's the only one that you could and then and then try. I constantly still I, I pretty much ignore them, but I still struggle with the like, now that's bullshit. I need to tell them that that's bullshit, you know, and it's like, who cares? They don't even know you. So who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I always want to want to respond back like, well. Thanks for the download, I guess, because the like, like the the serial offenders that every single week comment about what a shitty job I do on my podcast. I'm like, so are you you're listening every week? Like, why are you still listening? I found some solace in that um, oftentimes the comments would contradict one another. Like it would be like, um, you're doing too many interview sound bites, and then the next shitty comment would be, you're not doing enough internet sound bites. Right. And I was like, okay, I can't win, and, and that's a little emancipating. <laughs> yeah, it does give you it does give you like this little new sense of freedom. Like we forgot to have you have you tried changing music at all throughout the process? 
that's a big one for us. If we change a if you know a new season, change a new theme song, and we'll get you know a thousand comments that say I love the new theme song, and a thousand comments that say you need to stop using this new theme song. I don't like it. And it's like well, I just can't I can't react to any of this because nobody you can't please even half of everybody. No, and you know I it's it's actually been I. I'm a pretty sensitive person, and this is, I've learned to develop a very thick skin doing this. Um, and I actually see the world on a, um, on a spectrum now much more than I ever had. I think it was pretty binary before. Like the other day, you know, I do, I license music for the, for the podcast. It costs a small fortune. And, um, someone was commenting on how much they love the music. And then the first comment was like, I hate it. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And I was like, I should not engage, but it's on the Facebook and people are attacking this person and I don't want them to be attacked. And I was like, you know, that's fine. I don't know that this comment has any value, though. And right. she was like, well, it's my opinion. I was like, no, great. We all have opinions. But like, do, do, did you need to share this opinion? Like, does it have any value? I'm not going to change the music. Um, so right. <laughs> all you're doing is like making this person who loves the music maybe feel bad. Um, and then maybe making me feel like I shouldn't have spent $500 to license the song you're complaining about. Um, so like, right. what is the value? Because the song is already in the episode. The money is already spent. This woman already likes it. So I think those are the conversations I'm having before I engage with trolls um, myself. Like, what is the value of me engaging with this person? Because I'm probably yeah. not going to change them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then that leads to like another one of those really tough questions. People don't want to have with conversations they don't want to have with themselves. Like, totally. What was the purpose in me making this comment? And what was my purpose in responding to that comment? Yeah. And it's like, I'm not an arbiter of anyone's mental health or how they should or shouldn't talk to people. So I'm just going to let you live your life and pretend you don't exist. <laughs> right. Well, I can I can stir up some people and 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 maybe maybe make them mad about this because I like I want to have the conversation about the empathy like that was uh, when I was listening that was my first I'm like sweet he asked these people I want to talk to him about this <laughs> because the whole like the empathy for the serial killers because it is such a tough question and 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 what you brought up is exactly was was my thought on it was oh that's the, what was tough about it is so we're we're saying that in a lot of cases these serial killers are suffering from a mental illness. And so I don't, I don't forgive this person or certainly don't forget, you know, you, I think there's, I think there's a place where you can say, you know what, I can forgive and move on, but I'm still like, I'm done with you. Now we're not going to be, you know, at a personal level, like not going to be friends anymore, but you know, it's okay. I'm not going to stew on it forever, but to have some empathy for them is just, it's just such an interesting construct of a question because my first thought was, so I have a son who has like severe ADHD and he does some things that, I mean, he doesn't kill people, but he does some things that will drive you nuts. I mean, he just is bouncing off the walls and just, and, and he can annoy his brothers and sister and he can just, and, and just wear you out. And I'm always having a conversation with myself and my other kids. Sometimes I'm like, look, you got to cut him a Like he's not doing this because he wants to, he can't help it. And then when you posed that question, I thought, uh, like, how do I think about with a genetic predisposition for sociopathy that, you know, like I'm, we're mad at them for being a sociopath, but he really can't help that. I mean, granted, he still made a decision to kill somebody, but did you ever, did you ever land on an answer for yourself on that? Um, yeah, it's both. And, 
I, and I think we are conditioned to see the world in either or. And I think this is like we can both have empathy for him and th- think he's a terrible human being. Um, you know, it, right. it doesn't have to be one or the other. And uh, that's where I'm at. And I, you know, my I hate putting it in these terms, but for lack of a better phrase, my relationship with him has evolved quite a bit over the past seven years where. It was like monster and then a significant amount of empathy and then kind of learning to reconcile both. And now I just have to divorce myself from having any feelings for him. Like deep down inside, I have empathy, but actively I just am like, he's a monster and this is not about him. This is about his victims. And so I think that growth is probably an interesting component, I think, for the listeners is to see my evolution in this um, without necessarily making it about me because it's not. Yeah, and I like that that the both and because that's that's the, yeah I have some empathy for the fact that he was there was something in him whether it was you know there was the whole nature nurture conversation which is a long debate to have some other time but there was some kind of predisposition that was out of his control to let him there and I have empathy for that but also he's still a monster and deserves I mean he's dead now but you know deserved to be locked away and and taken off the street because he, that he, he was so chilling to me because. I didn't know much about the case, yeah, but my wife watched a documentary on it, and she like like bring me into it, like listen to this psycho, <laughs> <laughs> listen to him talk about killing people like it's just like he got a, bought a cup of, cup of coffee at a convenience store, like just he was a scary, scary, scary person. And that's what I mean. That's not what attracted me to the case, but I think as I was re- <laughs> researching him, um, what I found really interesting is. He's scary because he would attack anybody. And I right. think in a lot of true crime, and I've been guilty of it, I took a season off to cover a female serial killer. There is some um, sexism, uh, whether it's intentional or not, in the way we talk about serial killers and true crime and victims and victimology. And I think what made Keys really terrifying is a man could be a victim um, of him. And I think for the most part in the past, it was like gay men and women. So as long as I'm not gay, I'm okay. Um, And I I think I'm attracted to stories, uh, obviously, that challenge us. And I think that was one component of this is like, he could target anyone, anyone could be a victim. And that kind of changes the way we all sit within the world we're living in. For sure. Yeah. And and me listening to, so I'm I'm a big outdoorsman i spend a lot of time in like in the places where he was doing this you know i'm going in two weeks i'm leaving to spend a week in a national park in montana backpack uh camping and have fun think that yeah (laughs) so mike my producer is going is is going with and he's terrified of grizzly bears so he he made me buy a bear fence a portable (laughs) electric fence to put around our tents at night But yeah, but just to think about, you know, so it's kind of as I'm listening to this, to your show, and then like I have this trip in the back of my mind that's that's about to come up. And this thing is like, like that's how people, like, like I would be a perfect victim for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I park at a trailhead and go hiking off into the mountains, and doesn't matter if it's the only thing I got going for me is 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 I weigh 280 pounds, uh, and he said he likes little people, so Mike would be the one that that, that would get it probably before me. Um, but it was just like just random whoever like to hear him so coldly talk about how yeah I would just go to a place and just wait and see who walked by and just 
pick somebody. Oh, yeah. No, when I go hiking with my partner who is 6'3 and I am 5'6, I always walk in front of him because I'm like, well, they'll shoot him first. So I've got plenty of time to like run away. (laughs) 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 So how, how did your partner handle all of this like like this so you go from like driving around a van which is fascinating in and of itself that you guys did that but then like you you start this this new career in the podcast and i just know from personal experience the amount of time and bandwidth that it takes to research one of these cases and prepare it much less create a podcast like how did that how'd that work with your guys relationship how did, how did he handle that You know, it's been challenging all around, but I think the most challenging component is he is a very private person (laughs) and um, he's had to give a little bit of that away, um, you know, in support of me in this venture. But I think, you know, he doesn't really listen to a lot of true crime. I don't know that he listens to the show. (laughs) We don't really talk about it. My wife doesn't either. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And he doesn't need to. It's fine. But uh, so I don't think he can entirely comprehend, like, it's emotional burden on me, uh, especially early on when I was like, had not had time to really acquaint myself with what this was going to do to my psyche. Uh, I was a wreck. I was really depressed probably the first year and a half that I was doing the show because you're reading terrible macabre stuff every single day. You're listening to 30 hours of a serial killer over and over and over again. Mm hmm. So it was really dark, and I think that was hard on him, and he couldn't entirely grasp why it was so impactful to me. Um, Now I've divorced myself from a lot of that, or I've learned to, I guess, compartmentalize it. Um, And now it's more than just like, there are all these people who want to talk to me about murder, and to us that's normal, but to to people who don't engage in true crime, it's very strange. (laughs) Yeah. He and my wife sound a lot alike in a lot of the ways. Like, so she doesn't listen to my podcast. She, you know, she goes to CrimeCon with me and then, and then doesn't understand why all these people want to come, you know, talk about murder. She's not interested in any of that stuff. And then also like the emotions you go through. Like, I I still remember, I I remember like it was yesterday. I was out in my front yard doing landscaping. I was moving rocks when Robbie Chowdhury texted me and told me that Adnan, you know, when they first overturned his conviction the first time. Yeah. And I remember like she, t- I got that text and I like turned to her cause she's the one that was there and like tears pouring down my eyes. I'm like, they did it. He they overturned his conviction and I'm crying and everything. And she's just like hugging me. She's like, I don't understand. You don't even know this person. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. It is. So it's a real disconnect. Um, like she is very extremely supportive of what I'm doing, but I definitely don't think she understands. Well, she'll tell me all the time. Like, I don't understand how you're so emotionally invested in these people who some of whom that you've never met from reading documents but sounds like you deal with something similar yeah it was funny not too long ago and i won't go into details but you know key's daughter had you know kind of just a a hardship and you know i was like i found out and was like literally at my computer sobbing and she shares a name with one of our friends and i said oh you know so and so this happened to her and he was like oh my god and he was panicked and i was like why are you so upset um and then we realized we were talking about different people oh Oh, so you're talking about somebody i don't know at all yeah (laughs) oh you're talking about a serial killer's daughter okay uh and and then he he was like he got composed and was like why are you so upset and i was like i can't really explain it i just like live in this person's life um rent free without them even knowing i'm here and i just yeah your empathy comes through i think from what i've heard so far in your in your delivery and I, I think that's why part of the reason i like it so much because i'm kind of kind of the same way i 
I don't I don't know if like the word like the term empath is a thing, but if it is, I think that I kind of am one and I think you are too. Uh, where yeah. I have this thing like with all these cases and here I'm telling you I think you are too after talking to you for 20 minutes and uh, listening to your podcast not hardly <laughs> knowing you at all uh, <laughs> but I do have this, this this thing like I will just be brought to tears over some of these just a lot of like reading or listening to this things that other people are going through and and am I wrong about that with you no that's it, it's it's funny because on the surface, I'm a pretty stoic. Um, I've been accused of being cold person, but I have a significant amount of empathy. I just internalize it all and then, you know, have quiet breakdowns while I'm watching like the Real Housewives or Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's just interesting. I, 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 I just enjoy the podcasts that I really enjoy are the ones where I can tell that the host is. Which is like cuts against what journalism is supposed to be, right? If we're some sort of journalism. But I love the shows where the, you could tell that the host is invested. Like there's an emotional investment in the people and the stories that they're telling. And it comes through. And, and it definitely comes through with you. And I like that. But then, then every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll interview. I had, uh, I had Madeline Barron on from In the Dark, who's just like an, an incredible podcast and all the work that, that she did. And, she, and she's explaining to me how like, no, the journalistic standards, I didn't get involved. I didn't, you know, I'm like. Did you cry when he got released? And she's like, no, I, he's, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Okay. Um, that's, that's not how you're supposed to do this. I think there's a bit of a sea change, though. I, I think it's um, the younger generation who are way more in touch with their feelings. And I think also the polarity of social issues. I think we all kind of are looking for emotion in the people who are telling us news and, you know, like, I, after the last election, I was watching Van Jones just like sobbing and I was like, I needed to see that. Like I needed to see that the people who were experiencing the news on a grander level than any of us were feeling it at least the same way we were. And I, I think that people want to see that more now than they used to. Yeah. And, and I'm seeing some of that same shift in like, um, like Maggie Freeling is, it was like, is, is like legit journalist. And as she's gotten into podcasting, yeah. I talked to her a little bit about it. Uh, that same thing because I'm I'm always having this. And do you, do you ever go through this where you're as you're you know, we've jumped in, we've gone from other things and jumped into this kind of new career in a place where you can just jump in and all of a sudden you're the expert because you because you're on the internet, so you must be an expert now. <laughs> but like I'm always wrestling with like how to do my job right and whether I'm doing my job right or not because there's like no definition for it. Do you ever do you ever struggle with that at all? Yeah, I um I live in between storyteller and journalist a lot, um, and I don't really know which category to live in. Uh, so sometimes I'll be like, a journalist would say this um, because it's part of the story and it's the right thing to say. And if we're actually trying to solve these crimes, we should put it out into the world. But a storyteller who's embedded in the real lives of these people, who cares about these people, who has empathy for these people would not because it's insensitive or unkind or is ethically murky and i i feel like i'm just forever trapped in between those two worlds yeah i, I feel the same way and that was like i started to say like maggie made me feel a little bit better because i talked to her about the same thing like i get so emotionally attached when i'm trying to tell a story and you know she's like a journalist journalist and and she's like no like I, she's start she's shifting in that too like as a journalist that it's it's okay to to have this emotion you can't really tell the story if you don't have that in certain in certain ways but it's it's just it's just an interesting 
thing to go through. Like, like, so why we're all still navigating this relative, you know, it's, it's, it's been around for a while, but it's still a new space, you know, true crime podcasting, you know, you can't see what were they doing 20 years ago? Cause there was no such thing back then. Now let's go. I want to go ahead and, and pivot into uh, our case. The case you cover Israel keys. Uh, but can, can you kind of tell me first when you started, so you get this idea and you, and you, you've spent all this money on FOIA requests, you get document. I mean, you didn't half ass this by any means. I mean, you put a ton of effort and research into it before you started the show. Like when you started it, like what was your mission? Did you have like a goal in mind or a, a purpose for the show or to just tell the story? Yeah, I had a few and you know, I think hubris had a lot had a lot to do with it because I was convinced I was going to find all of his victims. Um and which thank God because I wouldn't have started the show had I not had the hubris and now I've learned a lot about um overconfidence in doing this but <laughs> I, you know, I'm 40, so I kind of came of age when true crime became a thing. And it's always been a part of my generation's zeitgeist with like unsolved mysteries and hard copy and uh, America's Most Wanted and all that. And so it's always been a part of my life. And I think growing up in the Bay Area in the early 80s uh, on the heels of Zodiac and Kemper and Bundy even to a certain extent. Uh, But the cases that always really resonated with me emotionally were missing persons cases uh because i just couldn't fathom your loved one not being there anymore and you not knowing what happened to them um and then just the experience of like is it my fault is it something i did is there something i could have done um i just like i live in those hypothetical questions a lot when i do this i mean a lot in general but specifically with with the podcast so the fact that this serial killer was out operating for at least 14 years in many states, and we could only identify three at the time, the FBI has since identified a fourth or named a fourth, I just couldn't fathom that there were at least seven, and I think that number is probably significantly higher, families who didn't know what happened to their loved one. Uh, and. The more time I spent with the files, just the more vexing that became to me. And so it was like, I want to find these people. I want to bring these families closure. And I also just like, yes, I have empathy for him, but he's also a dick and I don't want him to win. Right. So that was a big bit. And then also like, let's have these tough conversations about ethics and true crime and also how they affect us. And I think the world was a different place back then. And thank God for Michelle McNamara, because I think she gave us all license to talk about how this affects us. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. You know, and that, and that's interesting. You said that, like, the fact you said that he's a dick and you don't want him to win. Because, that, you know, as I, you know, outside of what I've listened to on the show, I, you know, just, and just reading about Israel Keys, like, like the way he went, you know, the, the fact that he took his own life, like, I think for him, that was his version of winning. Like, nope, I'm, gone and you'll never know no one will ever know who these victims are so like i like i I see you as like the superhero that's fighting back against that like no we're we're going to work and we're going to because so it sounds like that was the goal right is to find out who his victims were yeah without ever compromising anyone's humanity including his uh and that has been the trickiest part but it was like we need to do this but give humanity to everyone and have integrity and um this is not a murder mystery this is real life (laughs) Right. Do you have an idea of how long you're going to go? You said you took a season break to cover another serial killer um, and you're back on keys now, right? In the show. Yeah. 
We're about to wrap the fourth season of the show. We've done three seasons on keys. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was always really afraid of, um, I'm trying to think of, good, of a good example, like how to get away with murdering the show where we do it way too long and it just becomes inane and stupid. And it's like episode 536, Keys ate a ham sandwich on June 4th. And right. So uh, that was always my concern. And now it's more like, as long as there's story to tell, I'm going to keep telling it because I'm invested and I don't know that I will ever give up, but I, I definitely don't want the audience to give up because it's just become banal at a certain point. So I have said there's at least another season and a half of content and we'll see what happens after that. Nice. Yeah. that I go through that at the end of every season of Truth and Justice where we... I've never had a case that I've worked that I'm not still currently working on, but that's that's the trickiest part is knowing when to pull the plug. It's like, okay, well, there, there's still stuff for me to do, but there's not enough stuff for me to do and turn it into a 45-minute episode every week that anybody's going to want to listen to. And so, it, but it, I always, I always, it's like the worst part of my, uh, the worst time in the production is when it's time to say, okay, we need to end this season, even though we haven't fully completed our mission, but you know, I can't, I've got nothing to talk about anymore. Uh, but you think you've got another good uh, season and a half of content on keys still? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, uh, I am and I have a few researchers who started this season who, oh, God bless them. Um, I think we are finding enough now that and I've always said if we could identify one more victim, it would give us so much insight into how we operated. And we, I think, have three victims, which we are all pretty certain we're keys now we just need to confirm it um but with any one of those it opens a lot of doors into his psyche and his mo and his signatures and uh the lies he told he's told and the utility of those lies so i think we're in a good spot but yeah i did a season on kelly cochran and i got to like episode nine and i was like i am out of juice here uh and so i think (laughs) i don't want to do that because it sucked the life out of me and i did not love that season because it just felt like it was five episodes too long You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So what do you do? Uh, do you have a plan for when at some point you feel like you've hit the end of the road with Israel Keys? Do you, are you going to continue on and keep working on other serial killers? Yeah, there's um, three serial killers I've had my eye on, which is a strange turn of phrase, um, and, <laughs> um, that I've filed FOIAs for, or Laura Norton uh, was going to do a case, decided not to, so she sent me her files on that case. And then there's a few other stories I've been really interested in that I can't get files for, so I just keep refiling FOIAs every year, hoping <laughs> that they'll send them at some point. Right. So there's, you know, five cases that are up in the air, and we'll see. Good. That's good to know. Now, can you can you give us a... I'm sure there's people that have been listening this whole time yet and still don't really know who Israel Keys was or what he did. So can you give us kind of a, a basic beats of, of the Israel Keys case as far as, you know, where it was when you started investigating it. Yeah, I guess we buried the lead on that. Um, So (laughs) Israel Keyes was arrested in March of 2012, and no one knew about him until December of 2012, which is interesting. Uh, And that is because he made a deal with the FBI that he would share information as long as they did not make his name public. But his deal was he was a sexually motivated serial killer. He was raised by a woman who was kind of in and out of extremist religions. He was raised off the grid by survivalists. Um, he went to the army, so he was military trained. He's kind of when you talk about the perfect serial killer, that was him. Um, he was adaptable. He could withstand extreme environmental situations. He was trained by the army. Uh, He was raised in and out of cults uh, with some very dark social views. And so he was the perfect serial killer. And he was a contractor uh, who worked on a Native American um, reservation So he learned a lot about how to exploit federal lands and native lands, uh, and he was digging holes for a living. Um, So the guy was a machine, and he knew how to hide bodies, which is why we've only ever found one at this point. But he traveled extensively in the years that he told the FBI that he was murdering people. He took at least 40 different trips within the United States. Um, And I have found proof that it's significantly more than that. He was traveling in and out of Canada um, because we believe he had a fake passport, but he also seemed to know how to cross borders without being seen. So the guy was everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. He would turn off his phone. He would take these really crazy routes to get somewhere. Uh, He tried not to kill in his own backyard. So he, for example, eventually moved to Anchorage and he flew from Anchorage to Chicago, then drove from Chicago all the way to Burlington, Vermont, buried a kill kit, and then two years later did the same trip and used that kill kit to murder someone. So he was a ghost, and it was really hard to track his travel. We have trips where he flies into North Dakota, and then no one knows where he is until he flies from Phoenix to San Francisco. (laughs) So, yeah, and he robbed banks, and I have found a pattern that he generally would rob a bank after murdering someone as part of his cooling off period. 
And that's been really helpful in identifying who possible victims were or when he killed someone, uh, along with periods when he turned off his phone or periods where he was taking multi-route trips across the country for no apparent reason. He was arrested uh, for killing a 19-year-old in Anchorage named Samantha Koenig. He abducted her from a coffee stand in the middle of the night, murdered her after sexually assaulting her, and two hours after he was done killing her, he went on a cruise with his family. And when he returned from that cruise, he lived in Alaska, so her body uh, had frozen. Uh, he necrophiled her and then dismembered her and buried her, her remains in a lake. Uh, and he got arrested because he was using her debit card in Texas uh, a month later. So after that, he confessed to two additional crimes, the double murder of a family in Burlington, the couriers. Uh, and that's when the FBI started pulling all of his travel records, his phone records, and it became very clear that they had a quite a prolific serial killer on their hands. Yeah, I, I've never heard of a serial killer that was as obviously he had the urges and you know, he had his cooling off periods and he was evolving and devolving throughout the process. But then there's also like this crazy level of pre-planning and patience that it just, it, it just, I think that's part of what makes him so scary. Like the fact that he's like, hmm, someday I might want to kill someone in Vermont. I mean, that's, that's like the way I think about it. Like that, like this is what's going on in his mind. No particular person in mind, no reason that we know of, but just in case, and, and to be safe about it, I'm not going to fly to Vermont to scout this out. I'm going to fly to Chicago, rent a car, drive to Vermont, use cash as much as possible, just to go bury a kill kit in case sometime later I decide to go there and kill some random person. Like all those steps that he took just so nothing can go back to him. And then in the end, he devolves to the point where the uh, um, Sarah Kane, uh, Samantha Kane, Sarah Koenig, uh, <laughs> Samantha Koenig, uh, who was his, his final victim that we know about that he got caught for, uh, wasn't the issue with the, the reason he got caught was because he he was in his own backyard um, was a good was was a big start. Well, then he kept screwing up and using her her debit card. Yeah, and he went. You know, I don't. I believe there were two victims after Samantha. In fact, we have. I would say pretty incontrovertible evidence that there were two after samantha but um it he just it was like a bell curve uh you know he got more and more meticulous and then i think he got comfortable and he got cocky and started devolving quite a bit uh particularly in 2010 till his arrest and with samantha he wrote an uh a ransom letter and like hung it up in a park near his house and then took her debit card and was making ATM withdrawals while he was traveling across the country. It was just so sloppy. And so he's painted as the most meticulous serial killer there ever was, which is true both. And he made a lot of mistakes and was really lazy. So, yeah, but it, it is, do you think that he, now that you, you, you know, do you think, do you know, cause you've studied all this, were there situations where he was just as sloppy and he just didn't get caught? Because it, it seems like for somebody who has kind of just a cursory look at the case like me, that he like was so meticulous and so careful. And then in, in this one of his one of his last murders, he gets stupid and that's how he gets caught. You know, you know kind of like how Bundy get, got caught, you know, just being stupid at the, you know, at the end of the road. 
Was he like, did he make mistakes like that and just didn't get caught with previous cases? Yeah. Um, you know, with the couriers, he was caught on camera multiple times. He took, he left their bodies in the farmhouse where he killed them, which was three miles from their home and just left them there. They could have been found. The only reason they weren't is because the farmhouse was torn down uh, with their remains still in it. Uh, so uh, luck really served him. He uh, not to negate that he was really smart about things and meticulous, but he was sloppy. He made a lot of mistakes. Uh, he was seen by a lot of people. We've got probably sixty tips that came into the FBI, and twenty-five of them are very solid because they're repeating language that he used with other people. They they know stuff that these people wouldn't know at that point because thank God they had not released information about him and until his death. So yeah, he was really sloppy. I think he was just sloppy in areas he didn't live in for the most part. And so even though they would be like, oh, here's this guy, there was no way to trace it back to this contractor up in Alaska. Right. That make that makes a lot of sense. And then um also I would think that did it did it play into it the fact that a lot of his victims were people that were just presumed like lost in the woods or drowned, or you know, he would he would take people from places where they weren't necessarily suspecting foul play and therefore maybe weren't looking for an offender. Yeah. And he there's a quote from him uh, that has circulated around where he says, you know, that's where I did the, my best work was waiting out in the woods, because if someone disappears in the woods or disappears on a boat, they're going to think it's a boating accident or a hiking accident and call it a day. And I've talked a lot about the kind of the opposite of missing white woman syndrome is missing white man syndrome where you don't hear a lot about missing white men or missing men in general because often it is attributed to them being out hiking and doing outdoorsy stuff and they just did something stupid and killed themselves and he i think knew what kind of targets he could go after uh where he wouldn't get a lot of attention for it uh including uh, you know missing indigenous women yeah that's crazy and i don't it- I didn't realize until you just said it, maybe I, I missed it. I didn't realize that nothing about him was public until after he completed his suicide in, in December of 2012, because we're hearing on your show, like his actual recordings of FBI interviews, um, where he's, you know, they're trying to, they're, they're, it's like, they're playing chess, trying to get him to tell them who his victims were and where the bodies are at. And then what I found was, was crazy was that his, his driving purpose behind any kind of deal he was going to make was that he wanted to be put to death sooner. Yeah. That, that he wanted, he wanted it over and he, and he said it was because he wanted to protect it was protect his daughter. Yeah. Because he didn't want all this, all this publicity about her father on the news. Yeah. Which I believe, I think it's more complicated than that. I think a lot of it is he had significant shame around. I mean, he was a necrophile. He did not want to talk about it. Uh, he, even in his interviews where he's talking so callously about killing people, he never uses the words killer rape. He'll say, I took her, I took her. I was looking to take someone that night. Um, so as much as he seems a bit like a bragger, he also shows a, a deep sense of shame for his actions. And then he just takes his own life and puts an end to it. And this leaves everybody. Do you, do you know, is the FBI still working on trying to locate victims or have they pretty much close the case not really um you know uh, the last date in the case files i think is 2016 
when they were looking into one particular victim, uh, even in the case files, and I don't know what's been redacted, obviously, um, they don't seem to be making a significant effort in IDing any victims. They, I mean, they reached out to every tribe in the country, which is great, saying, send us your missing. Every jurisdiction in the country, send us your missing. But then it was kind of like, once he died, they were like, we'll never know. So I guess we're just going to move on. Um, and I interviewed an FBI agent who worked with the case. And he said, you know, we only have limited resources. And once killer's dead, like we have to apply them where they're best served, which, you know, I take issue with. But I also don't understand what it's like to be in the FBI and what the resources are like. So I just kind of have to take his word for it. Yeah. And I'm sure it makes some sense in the fact that if they, you know, there are people that could still be alive and killer still out there that they devote their resources there but i think that's that's what's so great about what you're doing is that you're continuing to work while you're telling the story of the serial killer you're working for the victims and the families and and trying to to locate some of these people and and bring some i always hate using the word closure because i don't know what it really means but some level of closure for lack of a better term to these families who just don't know what happened to their loved ones yeah it's really important to me and i you know, and I, it's a fine line. I try not to actually express my opinions uh, regarding who he could be responsible for, because I think, you know, I could have all the circumstantial evidence in the world, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, and so I don't want to put something out into the world where it becomes fact. Uh, and I've seen that happen so often, and we actually talk about it in the show. Uh, I think Richard Jewell is a great example of that. Right. And I don't want to be responsible for that. So I'm like, here are the facts. Um, and you, it's not up for me to tell you what to believe. Like, you take what you want from it. Uh, and I also don't want to do that to families where, like, I struggle with it a lot. And I've talked to journalists and I've talked to people, victims advocates who say, do not approach the family unless they have an advocate who's working for them or unless they are in the news talking about their loved one. And that feels weird because then I feel like, oh, here I am like researching your loved one and talking about it. But I haven't talked to you and that makes me uncomfortable. Um, right. And so I think my, I guess, trap door to that is I will never say like, I think Keys killed this person. It's like, let's shine a light on this case and let's also talk about like how Keyes' path could have crossed this person's path. Sure. Well, I think you're doing a great job. And for my, my last question, we'll ask for your, your opinion, not fact. Do you have an opinion on how many victims he has? The FBI landed on 11, which you explain how, how they got there on the podcast. They think that, that he likely had 11 victims. Do you do you have a number in your mind that that your opinion is how many you think he might have had? Yeah, I mean, I have a range. Uh, just judging from his travel and some stuff we've uncovered that will be coming out actually in this week's episode, um, I I would venture it's probably in the thirties, and we'll see. My opinion on that has evolved from season to season. Sure, I, but yeah, I think it's a significantly higher number than. Uh, what the FBI talk about in those tapes. And I've had conversations offline with the FBI or some of the agents and their opinions are not uh, reflected in those tapes either. They tend to think it could be much higher than 11 as well. Well, that's awesome. I can't wait to get through the rest of the podcast for all you true crime bingers. This is the perfect opportunity for you to binge. There's, there's four seasons to work your way through. I can speak personally. I have been through the first 10 episodes and I'm looking for excuses to drive around away from my family so that I can continue 
listening to the podcast. Uh, his name is Josh Hallmark. The podcast is called True Crime Bullshit. Check it out. It's going to be your next big true crime binge. Josh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Bob. And it was so great to finally meet you. You too. Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.